Why does the Most High allow suffering and the sin that causes it? Let's pop the top on this. Cue the music. There's a war going down, put your shield and your armor on. There's a war going down, put your shield and your armor on. Pick up your sword, gather your strength from the only one. Pick up your sword, gather your strength from the holy one. What's up, guys and gals? I'm Carl. And I'm Chris. And you're listening to another episode of that Philly Faith Podcast where we talk the walk. And walk it too. Set that bar for us, Chris. That was nice, Carl. That's better from last week. Yes, it was. <laughs> Thank you for I, hey. I'm just for shouting me out. Like I'm just that. I'm starting it off right, right on the right foot. In case you missed, I forgot the well, I didn't even I didn't say it on record. I forgot what our intro was last week. Yeah. That's what he's referencing. Right. But I in, will run in, myself over with the bus. Right. In true fashion, though, it just it took a couple of words and then like to kickstart you. Yeah. And then you got right on track. Yeah. So you're good. <laughs> All right. So what do scientists use to freshen their breath? You got me. I didn't introduce you, Micah, by the way. Micah's <laughs> that's, back. A, that's OK. We don't need an introduction. Pregnant pause for Micah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> OK. You got anything? I do not. All right. Experiments. <laughs> okay. <laughs> shout nice. out. Shout out to Joey's boy, Caden. That's his joke. <laughs> Very good. I, well, stole it from a, I stole it from a child. Yeah, well. <laughs> He's feeding you. you just gotta do. He's feeding you the jokes now. Huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny because so he attends the same. His boy attends the same daycare that my daughter does. And for a long time, he was he was saying. Hey, Chris, every time I every time I open the door to pick up Abigail, hey Chris, why did you get across the road? I'm like, why? He goes, to get to the other side. <laughs> and so, you know, I make a big deal. I slap my knee. Oh, it's so funny. You know, and so after I don't know, after about four or five weeks, I was like, You need to teach your boy some more some more uh some more jokes. He's got the one down pat. Mm-hmm. So Joe taught him that one, and now so like the last three weeks that that's been the same joke. So, but again, it it warms my heart because he's like, "Hey, Chris!" It's like across the room, mm-hmm. shouts it over everything. <laughs> so, I could I could feed you some for my son. He's he's really good. In fact, he even wears a like shirt. A yeah. yeah, he even wears a shirt that says "Official Dad Joke Giver." <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, maybe he needs to be on one of the times yeah, he comes home yeah, to visit. He would, he would definitely have a have a joke for you. We can just have a dad joke episode with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A dad joke face off. Yeah, that would be good. Well, I don't know. I, I have to come prepared for mine. I don't. I'll let you know ahead of time. Yeah, you can All come right. prepared. All right. Have a, a Mexican dad joke standoff. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good. I could see that happening. I like it. Like I told you, you guys, guys talking a Spanish accent if you do a Mexican. You almost have to. Yeah. Or bring sombreros into you. The listeners won't be able to see it, but we'll take pictures and post it. I think I have a sombrero somewhere. <laughs> what are those little shakers that they... Maracas? Yes. I do you have bring, a couple of maracas. You can bring some of those like and you know, every time... But I'll shake them in the background. That's yeah. right. There you go. <laughs> but they're, I think they're kind of like novelty, so I don't know if they break and they might break. Oh, yeah. I'll still bring them in. The beer, right? Just need them for the sound. 
Just right, every so, time you say a joke, you just shake it. Yeah, the question is, <laughs> do you want the comically overgrown sombrero or the comically too small sombrero? Because I have both. Depends on the joke. Okay. Bring them both, and then we'll, we'll tell you which one to put on. Which one I, I, I like that, because I'm kind of torn. I kind of want to see in the comically too small sombrero right now. <laughs> I never considered that as an option, yeah, but now I need the it. The one that just like sits on top of my head and has like a string. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> Oversized string for it. I like it. <laughs> so like I told you guys before we hit record, I don't really know how exactly I want this conversation to go, to be honest with you. So I'm just going to kind of give it to the spirit and we'll see how it how it flows. But before we, we dig into the main topic that I wanted to talk about, I'm just going to kind of open it up to you guys, whatever, whatever's been laid on your heart. Just kind of have a, a short open discussion. Whatever, if the Spirit's been showing you something or something you want to express or something you want to share, now's your time. So mm-hmm. start with you, Chris. Okay. You brought your notebook. Yeah, I did. I'm going to pass it to Micah, though, first. Okay. All right. Yeah, you can. Let our guests go first. Okay. Hand the baton off. Yeah. Right on. He's pushing that off on you is what he's doing. Gives him more time he's to masking think. masking it with being polite, but that's not what it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm that's pushing right. it. <laughs> Gives him more time to think, right? Yeah. Yeah, to see if, I don't know, like I've been fishing around for something, so maybe if I see an opening. Look for confirmation? Yeah, a little bit. I think God's, I, I've just been really convicted here lately about the pursuit of Christ. We... We pursue lots of things in life, you know, money and possessions and, you know, even our own idols that we don't admit are idols, mm-hmm. but we, but we pursue all these things. Compromises. Compromises. Yes. And we're not, we're not pursuing Christ. We're not, we're making it, we're making our walk about something different than about him. And Almost like lip service. It is. Like a half-hearted yeah. pursuit. Yeah, and I think we we are, I'm seeing more and more, and I've used this reference before, maybe not on here, but I've used this reference before that we have kind of the put God in a bottle type mentality, the genie in the bottle type, type, at, type thinking where when we're in trouble, we'll rub the magic lamp, we expect him to come out and rescue us from our problem and then we'll put him back in the bottle and we'll set him on the shelf until we and there's no real desire there's no real hunger and i was reading in matthew and all the happy are ye's are blessed depending on what version you you look at and Mm -hmm. it just it hit me with a few verses blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness and I thought, what does it look like to really hunger and thirst for God? Right. You know, the Bible says in the Psalms, as the deer pants for the water brook, so our soul should long for thee. What, it, what does it look like? You don't see a whole lot of that. You see kind of mediocre that I know you've talked about that, which is the name of the podcast, but, you know, the lukewarmness. And we're seeing so much lukewarmness now that... Yeah, the scary. antithesis of Philadelphia. Yeah. Because yeah, I really yeah. feel like when you look at the seven churches, you can really reduce it down to Philadelphia yes. and Laodicea as the two extreme ends of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's really, it's really bothersome. It's really that we don't have that pursuit or that hunger. We kind of, and I've said this before, and I think, you know, the most important decision that we'll ever make is our decision to receive Christ. And I do believe that. And I think that's important. But I think we stop there. I think mm-hmm. with saying that, it gives the wrong 
And I've said that before as well, but I think it gives the wrong perception or perspective where we think, okay, I have a relationship with Christ. I know that if God would come or something tragic would happen to me, I know I would be in heaven and that's really good enough. But it is not. No. Mm -hmm. And the Bible is very clear that it's not. And so I think there are so many believers that are living with that kind of mentality. Like I'm sealed. I'm, yeah, I'm sealed yeah, into the day exactly. of redemption. That's all yeah, I care about. I, yeah, exactly. Yep. And and I, and maybe it is like you just said. Maybe it is that that's all I care about. That's what maybe, worries me. Maybe that is their mentality where they're like, I know I probably should do more, but hey, I'm going to get there anyway, so why does it matter? Yeah, because to me, there's there's two possibilities. One is that they received an incomplete truth, which is accurate. Yeah. That, that it, what <laughs> you just described as an incomplete truth, and it's out of ignorance. The other option is, that they, like you said, they genuinely don't care. Yeah. They genuinely just want the reward. They don't care about the work to put in to thank him for the reward. And that's it. They just leave it at that, and that's that's bothersome to me. It is. And that's where the lip service comes in, because I think then we go into our churches and we you know we raise our hands and we lift up praise and we do all the things you're supposed to do during a worship service Mm -hmm. but then that's it there's no change and and carl's heard me say this over and over again it's and i'm genuine when i say it i'm i'm tired of nice services you know you go you go to church and that was a nice service pastor that was a nice that was a nice service like fluff services yeah yeah Yeah. I, i mean and, and granted, God is a God of order, and we should be orderly, and we should be respectful, and we should be worshipful in our in our services. We should have that energy to end all those things. But if that's all we're doing is just, okay, have a few songs, have a good sermon, you know, check the box, and then and then, and then, and then we then we walk out, and we there's no change. Then that's. I mean, I think there's people that sit in our assemblies so often and you wonder if they've ever been convicted from the Lord. Mm-hmm. That's a scary I mean, that's, place to be, I think. It is. And that's between them and God, I understand. So I'm not trying to be judgy on here at all because that is between them and God. They need to know it's a problem, though, if they haven't been convicted. Yeah, but I think, you know, when you sit there with that wall up over and over and over again and... God never breaks that down or you never feel the spirit move in your life, then yeah, there's, there's an issue. There's well, a, there's a problem. I think mm-hmm. of Isaiah and that's, it's, there's been two things I was going to mention that's been on my heart. First, I was going to mention is Matthew chapter six, verse 33, where he's talking mm-hmm. about all the things that we desire. And he's like, if you would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things would be added to you, but you need to seek first the kingdom. And yes. I see too much of, uh, we advance our own personal kingdoms in the name of his. We're not really, we're not really pursuing his. Yeah. <laughs> that, that worries me. And the other thing I was going to mention is Isaiah chapter six, verses six through seven, when the great Isaiah, the prophet comes face to face with the, with the glory of God, he's like, I'm undone. Yeah. I'm undone. He came face to face with perfect holiness and it just magnified his own unholiness. Yeah. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm not worthy. Of course, you know, God's response was to send the angel to touch his lips with sure. the burning coal, which is a representation of removing the sin. Yes. And that's that's clarified in the text. He says, I've removed your sin from you. Yes. I've atoned for your sin. You're worthy. You know. But he was convicted. Yep. He was convicted when he came face to face with the Holy One. And we should be too. Absolutely. 
Yeah, Jeremiah says, I think it's Jeremiah, it says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I think we, I think this kind of goes hands in hand with what we talk about when, when we make our lists instead of making God our focus. Mm -hmm. The center Um, of the circle. The center of the circle versus the top of the list where, you know, it's very easy to say, you know, and this is the, and I'm, again, I'm not judging anybody. This is the philosophy I had for a long, long time as well is, you know, God's at the top of your list. And as long as you take care of God first, then, then you can go about the rest of your list and whatever order you might have that in, depending on your, depending on your own personal situation. Mine was, you know, God's first, my wife and family second, friends third, and then so on. And then everything kind of fell by the wayside after that. But I think when you do that, it's very easy to, you know, oh, you get up in the morning, you have your devotional. Well, God, check. Mm-hmm. You put them back in that bottle, put them back on the shelf, and then, you know, you go on about your day, you go on about your pursuits. And as you do that, and anything that you do in a repetitive motion, you eventually, it becomes, it becomes muscle memory for you. Mm-hmm. You go, you go, you go to church in the morning or on Sunday because that's how you check the box that day. You put God, you, as soon as you leave the door, you put God in the bottle, put him back on the shelf. And now you're free to go, uh, to go about and pursue. And we've talked about that where, you know, you, you would, you, you know, you, I would think, Hey, I took care of God today. I'm now it's time to take care of me. Right. But when we shift that focus from list to putting him in the center of our circle, and where other things float in and out, you're always going to be looking for that. How can I serve you? And I think that's where I think for so long people, and and that's kind of where we're at today. People have had that mentality of everything you do should find glory for him. Now I will say that I think there's, you can go too far with that and where you try to fit God into the things that you want. Mm -hmm. So I think there needs to be caution on that end is not everything can give glory to God. Right. Right. I mean, clearly there's things in the, and that he says in the Bible that this does not give me any, any type of glory and don't get me wrong. I don't think anybody's out there, you know, that would listen to the show religiously that said, you know, sacrificing babies or, you know, devil worshiping or anything like that. But, you know, there's little things that are glossed over in the Bible as old traditions that should be observed as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think when, you know, when we, when we try to say, okay, well, this is something that I want to do. How can I glorify God doing it? Well, I think the first question needs to be, does this glorify God first? Yes. Would he be pleased with this? Is this something that I should be engaged in? Question number one. Question number two, how can I glorify God while I'm engaged in? I I feel like, yeah, our order of operations, and I think they've been off for so long. This This is what we've come down to where you have people in the church, they, I'm here to check my box, wall up, and they're thinking about what they're gonna do they're thinking about the barbecue that they're going to go to after church or the fishing trip that they're going to go on after church. And they just mm-hmm. go through the motion. I think a good example of what you're talking about. And it's something that I wanted to, to 
it's a passage I wanted to talk about eventually in an episode, but I'll just mention it in, in passing. There's a certain aspect of it, Ezekiel chapter 8, and Yahweh showing him the abominations that the—it's compromise. He's mm-hmm. showing him the abominations that the people are engaging in at the temple and how they're compromising worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal and the sun and things like that. And he's, he's you know, he's going through these different things. Have you, have you seen what the people are doing, Ezekiel? I'm going to show you even greater abominations than these. And he's showing them what they're doing. But he's showing him through a hole in the temple wall. Like he's seeing it at a distance. And I believe the reason he does that, he doesn't lead Ezekiel in amongst the abominations that are being committed so that he can see what's happening. He, he shows him through a hole in the wall on the outside. Ezekiel's on the outside looking in, and I think that's a, that's a picture of God. He wants us to see what's being done so that we know why he's bringing calamity, why he's bringing chastisement and discipline, but he doesn't want us to be amongst it. He wants to just be separated from it, and I think that's what he did with Ezekiel. He showed Ezekiel while at the same time keeping him separate, completely separate from the abomination that was being committed. Because answering that number one question, is this something that I should be in the midst of? Right. He doesn't share a space. We've talked about that before. God doesn't share a space with the unholy. Yeah. So that always needs to be question number one, should I be here? You know, And if we want to see these great, we've talked about this recently, Mike, and we want to see all these great miraculous moves to the spirit. We're going to talk about that next week. We want to see all these things, these incredible revivals, miracles, and all, 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 you know, all the things, the Acts chapter two things, you know, but we don't want to do the simple acts of obedience that, and the consecration and the sanctification that always comes first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We don't want to put the legwork in to showing that we're committed to him. We just want him to do all the work on his end. Steph, it's like Steph put it earlier today, you know, we're a thousand steps away from God we don't even want to take that one back to him. Mm-hmm. We want him to take all 1,000 in our direction yep. so that we don't have to do a thing. Mm-hmm. When he's saying, take one step. And as you take one step, I'll take 999. You've got to take that one, though. Mm-hmm. We don't want to do that. I think Chris hit it right on the head when you said that, you know, we put it, it defines our culture. We try to place God into what we want to do. God mm-hmm. may not be in that, but we're trying to force, well, and we can spiritualize Lots of things that should not be spiritualized. Right. And so I think you're absolutely right. I think that's, that and, and the reason why it's so bothersome is, and I'll, and I'll let you share because I could go on the whole <laughs> time on that. But the reason why it's so bothersome is because the end is near. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The end is getting close. I mean, we've, I know we've been hearing that, but tribulation is coming. The Bible teaches that it's coming. And, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm afraid that sometimes the, the lukewarm or the ones that are just kind of putting God in a box type mentality, they're not going to be prepared for what's, for what's coming. I agree. And, and that's what's bothersome. Our spiritual house is not in order. Yes. It's not I even close agree. to being in order. I mean, that worries me. Your turn. <laughs> You've had enough time to think. Right on. <clears throat> well, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just something that, you know, maybe it's just, it's worth a discussion. So, um, and I don't know if I've talked about it on the new reformed podcast. Um, so I'll go ahead and kind of run through the, 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 the small of it. So years, years ago, um, <clears throat> I was involved a couple of different times through one of my, uh, my brother's church, something called an oil change ministry. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason that I bring that up is because it came across my Facebook um, 
my Facebook memories. You know, I took a picture of us starting out. And so it got me to thinking, and you'll see where I'm going with the story after I tell this big, long story. <laughs> so um, so basically what an oil change ministry is, for those that don't know or have never been in one, um, the church organizes um, community outreach through um, oil changes. You know, sometimes people neglect their cars, um, whatever their situation may be. It's ma- It was mainly geared towards um, single mothers or widowers, um, but it was open to anybody. Anybody could sign up for it. So the church went out in the community, posted flyers, um, and so he said, you know, if you need your oil changed, you know, we'll do we'll do that for you. And we we did we did more than that. We inspected their car, and and it was all done through a licensed mechanic. He mm-hmm. kind of organized the whole thing, but it was really neat. It was like you know, it was, you know, twenty to thirty guys working in pairs of twos, and basically, you know. You would come, you would drop your car off, the and while your car was being worked on, the the church gave the whoever the the individual lunch and talked to him a little bit about Jesus and and um and then you know if if it took it took if it didn't hey glad you came in today here's your oil change you know God bless you be on your way <clears throat> so. It was really powerful to see, you know, you know, all these, all these guys working together and, you know, doing guy stuff, working on cars <laughs> and, and, um, I've, I learned a couple of valuable lessons and, you know, sh- just sharing one shortly. Um, I had the first one that I actually went to, um, I show, I <laughs> get that. I showed up late to it. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Chris was any, today. anybody, anybody that, anybody that knows me knows I tend to have a, a tendency to run late. So I'll tell you, I'll be there at six 30. If you want me there at six, you better tell me to be there at five 30 because I'm going to be running late. So I, it was like the third or fourth car of the day. Um, generally we, I can't remember how many we get through, but, um, I was, the car pulled in and it was at the time, a like brand new, I think it was maybe a 2015, 2016 Mustang, brand new, pearl white, beautiful car, you know, and, and here we are at a old change ministry, right? That's supposed to be geared towards the disadvantaged, right? So immediately my heart went to, seriously, I, I pulled up in a 2005 broken down Nissan Sentra and I got, you know, so I kind of, I kind of shouted something at my, so my brother, the two man team, one's primarily underneath the car. Cause we do it on the parking lot. So there's no lift. There's no oh. dugout. You're on your back underneath the car. So I was underneath the car. My brother's working on the top and, uh, I shout something to him and, uh, it was kind of distasteful, you know? And, uh, Nothing real derogatory, just something online like, are you kidding me? I got to work on this car or whatever. And and uh, so the, the car leaves and he goes, hey, I need to talk to you for a minute. He pulls me aside and he's like, first of all, even though we're not directly dealing with the the people, you know, you're part of this ministry. So you, your attitude kind of needs to reflect that. I'm like, yeah, that's. Sorry. So, and he said, second of all, and, he, and he's like, and the only reason that I say that is because before I got there, they had like a coffee and donuts thing. And then the the preacher prayed 
and then gave kind of a short sermon of the along the lines of you're probably going to see cars today that are nicer than your vehicles but remember we don't know why god brought these people to us mm. our job is to change your oil say god bless you and feed them the word like that's that's what your goal is here today so keep that in mind you know if you know yes this person might have a brand new you know third row seat gigantic suv but you don't know if you know they might have just lost their house and that's the only thing they have in their name mm-hmm. or a woman lost her husband brought the brand new car and then a week later her husband died you don't know don't judge just so anyways so i you know i learned lessons through it so it was really impactful um but the reason that the memory hit me so hard that day was the picture was of of our tent because we we set up canopies you know you can bring your own or, or whatever but the person right next to us um my brother knew one of the guys that he was that the of the guys of the other two man team next to us but the other and the other individual he was had only been at the church for like a month and i was like oh man that's that kind of really struck me like this guy's only been and i'm talking like like not had never been anywhere else not just moved a month ago like had only been part of the church the ecclesia for a month right Mm -hmm. so that really kind of struck me so and the reason that i did was i had been thinking a lot about of the adage um or the term get your house in order before you go to try and help somebody else get their house in order. No kidding. Right? Hmm. Yeah. So I was thinking like, and in the mindset of, I think a lot of people think like their Christian walk has to be perfect before they can do anything to serve the Lord. And I think that that's, I don't, I don't think that's completely accurate. I guess that's my main point. That would be the main overall question is, do you think there is a play? Now, I'm not saying like somebody that's brand new should be going on mission trips to Africa. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, if that's what he's called to do, then train him up and get him, get him, get him there. But to say like you, sh- you to, I don't want to say like, I, and I, no one has ever really said this to me, but to say that, you can't do anything for the Lord until you get your house straight. I want to be like, maybe doing things like that is what gets their house straight. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not always about an actual like family life. Maybe that, that male man needed to be other around other males that day to learn how to be a good man. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, so I think that's just kind of where my mind was. And that's why I, it struck me like I'm like ah, and that's I was gonna talk about that last week, but I know it would be a long story. So it's funny kinda, how those things work out like that. Yeah, because we didn't talk about this ahead of time. Right when I made that comment, but I think the the key phrase what you said there, train them up. Yes, that's where I think the church fails a lot. Right, we yeah. we give those like you referenced those fluff sermons and and good worship services, and that's where it ends. There's no real discipleship or training up, and that's not. That's not seeking 
I think well, I think what you're talking is the difference between having your spiritual house in order and being flawless. If we had to be flawless before mm. we ever served him, nobody ever would. Exactly. All right. We're not we're not going to reach that flawless level in this life. It's just not going to happen. Right. But he does want to see commitment. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. He wants to see commitment and an acknowledgement that some things need to change, and that he's the one that can change it. Yeah. Right. I watched a movie recently. It's called uh, Break Every Chain, and uh, really, what the movie's about isn't super important. It's a, it's about a cop and the 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 things he's seeing on the job start to get to him. He's not God fearing, so mm-hmm. it start it, it leads to sin. Ultimately, he cheats on his wife, and he's going to kill himself if something stops him. He ends up in a church. Right. Mm-hmm. Dean Kane is the pastor there and and that's the setup for it. But there's a line in it that the, I think is really powerful. And Dean Kane tells me, he's like, you know, you're giving your life to Christ. He's not going to change the consequences for the things you've done wrong, but he will change you. And that's where I think that's that's yes. an important takeaway yes. that we need to apply. I know it comes from a movie, but there's a lot of truth in that. Yes. There are consequences for the things we do wrong. Right. I know it's a little bit off base from what you were talking about, Chris, but I think it's important. There are consequences for our sin, and we're all going to sin. Yep. And there are consequences for the way we treat people. But he does promise to change us. We may have to live through or walk through those consequences, but he will change our heart if we're serious about acknowledging that we need that heart change. And that's, to me, what it means to have your spiritual life in order, your spiritual house in order, mm-hmm. I should say, is acknowledging that we've made a mess of it. It's a wreck in our spiritual house, and we need him to come in and help us clean it up. doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. doesn't mean there's not going to be any dust in it, but it does mean that we acknowledge there's a problem, and and we might need a little a, a, little, a little house cleaning or even maybe, uh, you know, a gutting job, yeah. <laughs> you know, some new walls put up. And depending on the situation, probably depends on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it just needs a fresh coat of paint, and sometimes, yeah, it needs a complete gut job. Makeover. Yeah. yeah right. My house needed a makeover. I'll be open and honest. He approaches us based upon where we put ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. I put myself on a pretty painful road. But I, you know, I acknowledged that something needed to change Mm -hmm. and and showed willingness and commitment to walk that road to get where I needed to be. Not flawless. You're not flawless, Micah. You're no. not flawless, Chris. No, there's not at all. there's no. nobody listening to this that's flawless. Right? right. But we do need to be trained up if we want to serve him and we want to to share the gospel and share his truth, we need to take being trained up seriously. Right. And I think that's you know, I mean, and that's where you know, my the reason my brother invited me to do that was there I mean, there was a couple reasons. One, he just you know, we it's a good time for us to hang out and talk. And, but, uh, I mean, another reason too was, it was, there was men in that church that was part of the men's group that he had been a part of. And, um, that, that he was really excited for me to meet because they were good men. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I think people think, well, I, I don't have nothing to offer the Lord. I don't, have an amazing voice that I can drop a number one record. I don't have, uh, you know, I'm not book smart, so I can't put together sermons and touch audiences of ten, tens of thousands. And I think people overshadow the fact that no matter what you're looking at, everything is made up of parts. Yes. 
And, you know, even though that, that guy next to me had only been a part of that church for a month, he was still a, a part of the ministry of the oil change ministry. He was part of a small part of that machine that was, that was reaching people. And I feel like people, I don't want to say, I, I guess they don't, they, they have trouble finding ways to glorify Lord, the Lord with the things that they do because they don't think they're big enough. I'm like, mm -hmm. everybody has a talent. Everybody has a way, even if it's serving through ministries that reach people, it doesn't always have to be a one-on-one -on -one with somebody or one against 10,000. If you're, I think, I feel like if you go and pursue and keep that, keep your circle or keep your focus on him, your, your works will reach people. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's kind of what it came, came down to to me was, you know, like I, I hate when well, I have nothing off for the Lord. I'm like, you have everything. Yeah. He made you, he, he made you. And I think this is where it kind of leads back into our conversation of you have a purpose. You were made for a purpose and yes. you, that's, it's up to you to find that purpose. Mm -hmm. you know what I mean, and so. a surrender. Yeah. He'll show you what your purpose is. If, if you show that commitment, take that step, right. Pray about it, seek him, mm -hmm. inquire him, inquire of him. We live in a very celebrity obsessed culture. And I think we carry that celebrity obsession into ministry and we view it like, unless I'm a rock star preacher with a huge attendance level and, and social media fame, I'm not really serving God. Well, when you really analyze a lot of those rock star preachers, what they're teaching isn't good. Mm -hmm. Success can come from the other guy too. Right. And God doesn't, God doesn't frequently measure success the way the world does yes. with a lot of followers and a lot of money and big buildings. It's not often how God measures success. You mentioned Jeremiah earlier, Micah, and I just watched a movie about him, and it was it was very Bible based. It was very accurate, but just seeing seeing the reality of the road he had to walk mm. kind of made it come come to life. And it's when he's prophesying to the king, uh, what was the king's name? Jehoiakim. I you think recall? So, yeah, I think it's one of those weird names that starts with a J. But he's very disobedient, and. Through Jeremiah, Yahweh warns him repeatedly, Nebuchadnezzar's coming. Yep. You people have sinned against me greatly. You've refused to repent. You're worshiping Baal in my temple. And you, king, have done nothing to stop it. You need to repent. But there are consequences. It comes back to what we talked about. He, he didn't offer to take the consequences away. Yep. But he offered to restore and reconcile the relationship. And he told the king, you have to turn yourself in. You have to surrender. If you surrender... It'll go well with you and you will live. That's what he told him. Well, in the process of, the point I want to make, in the process of Jeremiah giving this prophecy, he was severely mistreated. Now, he's surrounded by false prophets who are saying, oh, we're going we're gonna to break the backs of the Babylonians and this Jeremiah. He's a false prophet. False prophets accusing Jeremiah of being a false prophet. And at one point, one of the chief prophets, Hananiah, I believe was his name, uh, they had Jeremiah in wooden stocks. And Hananiah savagely beats Jeremiah until the wooden stock breaks. And he says, thus says Yahweh, as I've broken this wooden stock from, from this yoke from Jeremiah's neck, so too will we break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar from our necks. That's what Yahweh says. Of course, Yahweh didn't speak that. 
but Jeremiah had to walk that road. By, by all metrics of the way we measure success, we would say Jeremiah was a failure. Yeah. But this false mm-hmm. prophet was successful because everybody believed him. He had money. He had fame. He had followers, right? Right. And Jeremiah turns to him, and Yahweh speaks through him and says, you've just replaced a wooden yoke with a brass one. And then frames up Hananiah and says, you'll be dead within a year. You're going to see that your prophecy was false. I'm going to make you watch that first, and then you'll die. That was his reward for his material worldly success. But Jeremiah had to walk a very rough road that we would we would classify as failure in the yeah. modern American celebrity-obsessed church. The point I'm trying to make is we can't, we can't m- measure success the way the world does or the way Satan was would. We have to measure success the way Yahweh would, the way the Most High would. And when you look at the lives of the prophets, it's not often success the way we tend to think of success or the way the churches tend to think of success. We were... <laughs> I hesitate to bring it up, but... Steph and I were talking about this today, and it's too on the nose. When you look at our little town, which is mm. 13,000 people here maybe? Oh, they say, yeah. 40 some, 40 some churches? Yeah. Three of the most successful churches in town I would classify as heretical. Mm. If we're, I mean, if, if, if we are measuring success that way, one of the most successful churches in town is the Church of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. And I'm sorry if I'm insulting anybody listening. It's the absolute truth. What they teach is heresy but they have the numbers, they have the revenue, they have the money, they have the multi-million dollar building. They've got all the success. Is that because the spirits move in there? Or is it another reason? We've got to stop measuring success like that because he doesn't measure success like that. Yeah. I yeah. wasn't raising my hand, sorry. Oh. <laughs> I know you can't see it, but I just scratched the back of my head. It looked like I was raising <laughs> my hand to interject, sorry. I don't really have anything else to that. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? No, that's kind of, I have another, I have something else, but again, it's another big point. So we'll save it for next, next time. I'll, I'll just say to wrap that up. I think the best training is actually the best training for ministry is actually doing ministry. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about, you know, they don't have to be, you know, I agree. They don't have to be some famous, you know, have their life all in order to, to do it. Sometimes the best training for ministry is seeing people do ministry, mm-hmm. seeing that love in action, seeing that impacting of people. And a good example and, that's probably Timothy. Yes. I would say. Yes. I mean, instead of sitting there and just telling them, okay, this is how Christians are to act. Now let's show them. Let's get them out there. Mm-hmm. Are they going to make mistakes? Of course. We all do. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's let them see what it's like to serve, genuinely serve God and put it into, into action. I think mm-hmm. that's the best training. Yeah. I agree. I think if I remember right, the the, the pastor said in, in, in wrapping up his speech, he's like, remember, you are not above washing anybody's feet. Yeah. And it kind of, it's yeah. like, it's good wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I was like, all right. <laughs> so what's been on my heart a lot recently is God being in control. Like all three of us agree that God is in control, right? Oh, yeah. But have you ever struggled with that? The reality of it? Like, it's easy to say it. Yes. It's really easy to say, yeah, God's in control. But when you get into the the nuts and bolts of the implications of that, living like you believe it, 
and like you accept it and like you're okay with it is different. Mm-hmm. Yes. I shared with you, Micah, that there's a, a Greek philosopher. His name was Herodotus. And for some reason, this quote, I came across it recently, and for some reason, it's really stuck with me. And he once said, of all men's miseries, the bitterest is this, to know so much and to have control over nothing. Hmm. Now, you know what he's saying there, right? He's, he can't accept the idea that there's a most high that's in control of everything. He thinks or thought that the most miserable thing, the most miserable reality that you could ever face is that you as a man aren't in control of everything. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we struggle so much with the idea of the creator, the most high being in control? If I asked you two, like I have my answer and it's going to shift us over to our main topic, but why do you two, based upon either your own personal experiences or what you've seen from others, think it's so hard to accept that he is in control? I think it's selfish. I think we, you know, we, we want to be in control and to realize that somebody else is in control, even, even though we, like you said, intellectually, we know God's in control, but to actually live that way, we want to feel like we've got our hand on something. We want to feel like I'm guiding this. God's going to help me, but you know, kind of like my grandfather used to say, and I had somebody disagree with me. That's a story for another day, but my grandfather used to say, if God's your co-pilot, you need to move over. And he needs to pilot your life. He needs to be the one in control. And that's what was, was his point. He needs to be the one guiding you. And I think, I think it's selfishness. I think sometimes it's pride. But I think for the most part, it's selfishness because we want it. It's about me. Mm-hmm. I want to I say I accomplish this. Which is kind of a form of pride too. It right? is. It is. But I think, I think that gets in the way. And to realize that, you know, we were watching a movie recently. I won't say what it is. It's not a Christian movie, but um, it says you don't really have control. You have the illusion of control. Mm-hmm. You know, what he's ultimately saying is what you just said. You know, ultimately, God's, God's in control. God's guiding us. Yes, we, we stray off and we run our own path, but God's guiding it. God told, you know, we use Jonah a lot. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. And yeah, Jonah got on a ship and went the other way, but where did he end up? Nineveh, Nineveh. where God told him to be. You know, when he strayed, God allowed yes, it. Yes. And so, but I think for me, at least in my life, I think it's selfishness. I want to act like I, yes, I know God's in control, but it's almost like, okay, God, here's my plan. I want you to bless this plan mm-hmm. as opposed to God designing the plan and working through you with the plan. I expect God to just bless this plan that I've come up with. Yeah. Mm. You want a calling upon your life, but you want to decide what that calling yes. is. Yeah. yeah. So I think for me, that's what it is for me. I mean, that's pretty much a more, a very eloquent way of putting what I, I mean, the general consensus is, is, is it's, it's a pride thing. You know, yeah. when, <clears throat> when somebody else holds the, the, the playbook, it's hard, it's hard for you to, like, because you don't know what's in that playbook, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I don't know if it's kind of a sense of you don't know what the rules are because you don't see the rule book. Yeah. Right. Right. You you don't know what the play is because you don't. And I, and I feel like we don't want as as much as we know he is in control. 
we don't want to fully accept that because then we feel like we might be on a lost path, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So, but in turn, if we would just loosen our grip on what we're trying to control, we would see the plan. Yes, like right. So I think it's it's kind of a it's kind of a uh, double edged sword, you know, one hand versus the other hand. Whereas we're scared because we can't see it and we don't know what's going to happen. But if we would give up and let go of that grip a little bit, we would see what, you know what I mean? Like he would show us what we're meant to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's kind of like, like I said, it's sounds a lot better in my head and in, in my head it sounds really great, but <laughs> it, it's a struggle for me. I tell you, cause I'm a control freak. You know, I'm not a very good passenger. I like to drive. If we're in a car somewhere, I like to be the driver. Oh, you're one of those guys. I am. Yeah. You know, we, I had the privilege of going to North Carolina last week to see my, my granddaughter and my, or yeah, my new granddaughter. And, you know, we took turns and went with my daughter and kind of a road trip, daddy daughter road trip. And of course we 17 hour trip. We're going to switch drivers. And sometimes it's like, okay, you're, taking this you're up in this mountain you're taking this kind of fast you know no (laughs) i can't say that you're thinking it the whole time or or we want to be fixers you know even something as simple as a thermostat well i'll go you know you're cold okay i'll fix that you know i'm in control of the thermostat i'll I'll fix that Mm -hmm. so yeah i'm kind of one of those one of those guys so i don't think there's a a singular answer to the question but for for me and what I want to focus on is I think a, I think a lot of the struggle for a lot of people is the existence of suffering. Because I think one of the realities it presents us with when we acknowledge that God is sovereign over everything and God is in control over everything, that means the suffering in the world he's in control of too. And I think that's something that we struggle with. I think we struggle a lot with that. Yeah. Uh, I, I recently read and they did it they, and they do this occasionally. It's not the only time they've done it, but they took a poll and in the poll, they asked if you could ask only one question that you that you would get an answer to from the Most High, from God. If you could yeah. ask him just one question, what would that one question be? And the number one question, and it wasn't even close, was by far, why do, why do you allow suffering? Why do you allow suffering? Wasn't even close. That was number one. I think that's where we struggle the most with it. And I think it comes it comes down to that question, if he is in control... Why does he permit suffering? There has to be a reason, mm-hmm. right? He's not a God who does anything by accident. Everything he does, there's purpose behind it. Yes. There's purpose in everything, which means there has to be purpose in pain too. Yep. Pain and suffering has to have a purpose. I think really the underlying question is we know where suffering comes from, right? There's no reason to, to, to dance around it. The re- yep. Suffering is a result of sin. Yes. Sin in the world. Sin mm-hmm. brought death and suffering into the world. There was none before that. So the real question is, why does he allow sin? Why did he ever allow sin? I heard it on the radio recently that a a pastor was talking about how, you know, uh, an an attendee to the church asked them point blank, why did he not just either not create Satan? If he's all-knowing, if he's all-knowing, and he knew that Satan would rebel and bring sin, why did he create him? Why didn't he destroy him? right? Why did he allow Satan to exist? Why did he allow Adam and Eve to even have the option to sin? Why did he put the tree there? Why did he tell him not to eat from it? Right? 
there's a lot of questions, but it all comes down to why does he allow sin? I'm going to let you guys think about it, give your answer. I have my answer, and that'll lead us to the end of this segment. Because what I want to do first, just to give a heads up, like the first thing I want to do in tackling that question of sin and suffering is give the Bible-based, intellectual, theological response to what the answer to that question is, or what we believe the answer to that question is. And then we're going to kind of transition to a different approach in the bottom half of the episode. But I'll turn okay. that over to you guys. Um, I will we say get the intellectual part. Yes. Uh, oh, that's fine. You're, you're, uh, I trust you're you. You're playing with fire. That oh, I was going to say, you, with, that, with, with that monologue, I think, I, I think I'd like to edit my, edit my answer, but we'll do that in the second half. Okay. I guess that's me then. I think this is way past it. I guess so. Oh, no. I mean, you want us to re-answer that question now before we go no my question for right now is why do you believe that god permitted the existence of sin to begin with why does he why did he permit it why does he permit sin why does sin exist if god is in control why is there sin why doesn't he just stamp stamp it out entirely kind of a tough question isn't it yeah i mean i think in i mean interrupt you i think you kind of answered answered the question with with what you just said was it's not always him that creates the suffering right sometimes he does but not all the time but i feel like the question or the answer to the question is why does he allow suffering is because it has a purpose so when you said suffering has a purpose i think you answered the question of what was why does he allow suffering because he sees the end purpose. I feel like that's why we might struggle with it is because we don't see because we're in the, we're in the suffering and we might not always see the exit or the purpose for it. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what the I mean and so so what's the purpose? The the purpose of him allowing suffering? Oh, what's the purpose of it? That's what I'm saying. If that, that's our answer is like sin exists and suffering exists because he has a purpose. What is the purpose? We don't know. And that's, I think that's why I'm saying that's what's the scariest. I think that's why we struggle with that is, is we don't know the purpose always. I'm, I'm going to disagree a little bit. Sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, I think right there is, a, I what... think, I think there is a purpose. I think the purpose is his desire for fellowship with us. He, he created us for fellowship. His desire is that we have this intimate relationship with him and this, and this fellowship with him. And because of his great love, his tremendous love for us, he wants us to choose him, to choose to honor him, to choose to worship him, to choose that relationship. Otherwise, he becomes, if he didn't, if he didn't, if he took away sin, to back to your question, if he took away sin completely and, you know, didn't create the the tree of knowledge of good and evil, if he if he just made us perfect, then he becomes a dictator. He doesn't become a loving, gracious God. And so I think the heart of the heart of it is his desire for us to his his creation, his most precious creation that he was willing, and maybe this is part of the second half, I don't know, <clears throat> but where his son experiences pain and suffering for us with the lashings and the beatings on the, on the road to the cross. And then the father placing the payment for sin upon his son 
and the grief that the father experiences. I don't think we don't always talk about that. We talk about the 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 pain, the suffering of the son, Jesus Christ on the cross, and we should. Mm-hmm. But imagine the pain of the father. Having to watch it. Yeah, having to watch it and to know that his son is the payment for that sin. And I think a loving, gracious God desires that relationship for that's why he walked with Adam in the cool of the day. And I and I think if he didn't give us a choice, then we become robots. And he becomes a dictator. Mm-hmm. He doesn't become a loving, gracious God. He's given us a free will. And yes, he knows that we're going to choose to disobey. That's why he had the plan for his son in place. But I think I think the answer is the desire for the fellowship with us that he wants us to choose him. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm going to take a little bit of a different angle. It's not, it's not in disagreement with what you're saying. I, I believe people want answers, right? Mm-hmm. We've all been touched by the suffering in the world. We've all been touched by the suffering and the pain and the misery that sin has caused, collectively speaking. So we want answers. And I think, largely speaking, the church has failed in providing those answers. And I think that's why most of us would say that there's, we can't know, right? There's, we can't know the purpose, but I think we can if we understand the Most High. If we understand the Father and who He is and what He is, which I think the church has largely failed to do, and we're going to kind of try to explain why that is. So if I say that our God is a God of moral absolutes, would you agree with that? Yes. Because the the alternative is He's a God of moral ambiguity. Mm -hmm. When I say moral absolute, I mean that when He says, do this or don't do this, He means it. Yes. It's set in stone. It's a reflection of His moral character that just exists in his person. Right. So when he says, don't murder, he means it. Yep. When he says, remember the Sabbath day because I'm your creator, he means it. When he says, don't mix and mingle with pagan worship practices into your approach to me, he means it. These are moral absolutes. Right. They're set in stone. They're, they were written on tablets, now they're written on our heart. These are moral absolutes. And he's unwilling to waver on those. He makes that very clear. And here's where the problem begins. The church, as fallen, made up of fallen people, right, we prefer moral ambiguity because we're in sin. And you mentioned it Sunday, Micah, that, you know, we pick and choose the commandments. I like this commandment, I'm going to take that. I like this commandment, I'm going to take that. I don't like this commandment, I'm going to throw that out, throw this out, and throw that out. That's moral ambiguity. Yep. And what we tend to do is we take a morally absolute God and we take our moral ambiguity and we project that moral ambiguity onto him and we say I'm going to give you lip service God I'm going to allow you to have your title of sovereign Lord but I'm going to do things my way I'm going to be sovereign over my life I'm going to do whatever seems right in my own eyes as Moses said my moral ambiguity is going to become you and you're going to accept that. And because we, we deflect from his moral absolutism, we can't properly answer the question for why sin entered into the world. Because if, if God was truly morally ambiguous, 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 if he was truly morally ambiguous, he could just shift his moral standard with our propensity to sin, and sin would no longer be sin. If he was truly morally amb- ambiguous, he could just shift around. And he would if he wasn't morally absolute. 
but he is morally absolute. He won't shift with sin, which is why we have a definition for sin. Does that does, does it make sense so far? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you add to that reality of his love, his love is also absolute. His his moral absolutism and his his absolutism of love coexist in his person. He loves us, mm-hmm. and because he loves us, he gives us free choice. Because if we yes. didn't have choice, we've talked about this before, love wouldn't be love. Yep. We'd be automatons. Not only does he love us, as you said, he wants us to love him. Right? Mm-hmm. He wants us to love. Because his love is absolute, he won't remove choice from us. He's in control, but we still have a choice to love him. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So if he can't shift his moral standard, if that's absolute, and if he won't shift his love, therefore he won't remove choice from us, that's absolute. When you have moral absolutism, it, it necessitates the existence of an opposite choice. He didn't create the opposite of morality, but the fact that he's morally absolute, it automatically creates the existence of an, of an opposite, which we call sin, mm. because he won't shift. So he doesn't make sin, but sin naturally exists because he's morally absolute. And because we have choice, and we are not perfect, as we've already discussed earlier, we are flawed, because we, we can't be God. We can't be like him. When there is a choice to make, and a moral absolute, there is the inevitability that at some point someone will make the wrong choice. Sin is inevitable. Yeah. And because he loves us, and he won't stamp out sin, which would require him stamping us out. Yes. He would have to destroy us. And in Ezekiel, he says, it's not my desire that any should perish. I want everyone to come to repentance. Even the ones we classify as so evil that they're beyond help. He says, I want that person to repent too. Yes. Which is why he doesn't destroy us. Right? Because he loves. Because his love is absolute. Which means that by necessity, he has to deal with the sin issue. If his morals won't shift and his love won't shift, and he's unwilling to destroy us because he wants us to repent, he's left with only one option, to deal with sin. And if sin is inevitable, that means that Satan was always going to be a reality. If he didn't create Satan, there'd be another one. Satan was inevitable. And the choice of Adam and Eve to sin was inevitable. I believe he put the tree there because it was going to happen. No matter what, at some point, someone was going to sin bring sin into the world, and create the necessity he deal with the sin issue. So he had to just make it happen there. Does that kind of make sense where I'm mm-hmm. going so far? Mm-hmm. So how would you deal with the sin issue? And I think it's best to reduce it down to, rather than imagine ourselves as the most high, we're all fathers here. Imagine ourselves. We don't have to imagine ourselves. Just think about our interactions with our children. We have rules for them, right? Those mm-hmm. rules are absolute. Yep. We have, we have rules that are absolute, and that's a placeholder for his moral absolutism. Any of, either one of you, your daughter, Chris, your kids, Micah, have they been flawless Mm-mm. with your rules? <laughs> no. Was it inevitable that they broke rules? Yes. Mine as well. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the inevitability that they'll break rules? What's the response? I don't want to say it because you're, you're proven... You're proving things that I've said in the past on the show to be to be wrong, and I'm, it's punishment. Punishment. Yeah. 
Discipline. Yeah. Consequences. You'd say the same thing, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Consequences, yeah. Consequences. There's no option. There's no alternative. Your rules exist for a reason. It's inevitable that they will disobey those rules at some point, which means there has to be a lever of discipline to train that disobedience out of them. It's the only option. We can apply that individually. We can also apply that collectively. I think when we look at the existence of sin in the world, and that's where suffering comes from, is sin, just as he has to discipline us individually, he also has to discipline us collectively. And the purpose of discipline for a child is to teach them never to break the rule again because there's a reason for the rule. It's not enough to just say, do this or don't do that. Children tend to have to experience the consequences of disobedience to learn why they shouldn't disobey that, disobey that rule again. And I would liken this to like a mousetrap. I don't think sin is the mousetrap. I think sin is the poison cheese on the mousetrap that we all want because it tastes good, right? But to deal with the sin issue, God had to make a lever to train sin out of us, which is the mousetrap. It was inevitable that mankind would reach their hand into it to grab for the sin. So to train that out, there had to be a pain lever, a pain mechanism to teach us why sin was wrong. I think intellectually speaking, theologically speaking, that's the answer for why there's sin and suffering in the world. Is because collectively when we move into eternity, when we move into the coming kingdom, we had to go through this figurative six-day period, this 6,000-year period, where we'll always be able to look back at this period of human history where we were allowed to make all the wrong choices. And we'll know where that led. Why we can never make those choices again because he trained sin out of us. Sin was inevitable. But we went through this period collectively to be trained by the lever, by the mousetrap. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And again, I think the reason the church fails in addressing that question to the detriment of a lot of people who are in the midst of suffering is because they don't like moral absolutism. We don't like moral absolutes. We want to shift. We want to be ambiguous. And because we morally shift, because we're morally ambiguous, we can't answer the question. Because mm -hmm. the question, the answer, the true, the right answer to the question requires understanding that he is a morally absolute God. And there are consequences. There are consequences to choosing to disobey him. And we have to acknowledge both the consequences and the reason for the consequences to have that sin trained out of us. <clears throat> so, and in, in, in that mindset, do you think that covers all suffering or a specific type of suffering? I think broadly speaking, it covers all suffering, but, but suffering has different causes. Sometimes I think suffering is a direct result of, of chastisement. Other times I think it's because we live in a world that is fallen as a result of sin. And because he's unwilling to destroy a species wide to eradicate sin because he wants all to come to repentance, sometimes suffering is caused by the evil choices other individuals in this fallen world make. But we blame God for that. So when this evil person does this evil thing to this, what we call innocent person, we say, oh, God, God allowed that to happen. So he's at fault. But collectively speaking, we chose to reach our hands in the mousetrap, right? Which means that when we live in this world together, we're going to suffer 
harm from other evil individuals because we're all, I hate to break it to everybody listening, we're all evil. There may be different degrees of evil. We're all evil. We've all sinned. We've all reached our hand into the mousetrap. We all need sin trained out. Now, that's not me being counseling. We're going to cover, that's, that's what we're going to shift to in the, the, the second part. How do you approach somebody who has fallen prey to extreme suffering? Because this does them no good, right? This, this right. intellectual theological explanation for why you had to suffer so grievously at the hands of evil people does not do that person any good. That requires a different response. But when we're talking to like atheists, right, who just really hate the idea of moral ambiguity or moral, moral absolutism altogether, and they consistently point to suffering in the world, and they, they think it's a gotcha, right? right? It's a gotcha. Uh, they're suffering in the world. You claim that God's a loving God. He's not truly loving or suffering wouldn't exist. He'd just eradicate suffering altogether. Gotcha. God's not loving. Yes, he is. Suffering exists because he's loving. That's what I'm trying to explain. The fact that we're allowed to persist and that he didn't remove choice from us and turn us into robots and just eradicate us altogether is evidence that he does love. Mm-hmm. Right? He's not the problem here. We are. He never deviated from his moral absolutism. We did. I think you've said it before, Micah. If, if, if you find yourself out of fellowship with the Father, he didn't move. You did. Species-wide, collectively speaking, we moved. And there are consequences for moving. And sometimes those consequences are painful. Extraordinarily painful. Sometimes more painful for some than others. Sometimes that pain isn't necessarily fair by the way we measure fairness. But species-wide, we moved from him. And in love, his only option, his only recourse is to deal with that sin issue and train that out of us. So that in a thousand years from now, or a million years from now, if there's ever any temptation to sin again, we can look back at the memories from living in this fallen world and be like, no, I know where that leads. (laughs) I'm not going to do that again. We kind of see that. I believe Jude references, I think, maybe maybe it's Peter, talks about when Satan fell and the other angels were watching this. And they were kind of shocked by the response from God. They They were shocked. They dealt with the same thing in a different way from us, but they've dealt with the same thing of having this sin trained out of them. But one of them had to make the choice, that bad choice, to get that trained out. Right. I know it's not the response that a lot of people want to hear, but it's the truth. Mm. <clears throat> I think maybe, maybe I'm 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 trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out a way to formulate my thought i guess maybe at some point we'll need to make because i don't want to ride a trail too far from our main topic but maybe we might need to have like a separate um discussion on on what what we mean when we say suffering if we need to spill over into next week we can do that right because we're coming up on our on our pretty close to our break to our break. Or we'll we'll right. shift over. We can spill over if we need to. But go ahead and say right. what you I think I think there might be a place in here where we need to separate pain and then from suffering. Because I think we I think we tend to lump the two together. And I think in this case they can be separated. Um in the sense where of of 
you know, me being a father, I can imagine, I can't say that I would know how I would feel, but the pain of losing my child, Mm -hmm. like somebody that was going through that, I could see where they would listen to this and go, how do you think the suffering that I'm feeling now was God can justify that? Like, because from whatever that child died from, you know, but I think in that's like in that certain situation, that's pain that you're going through, not necessarily suffering. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think maybe that might be where in some, in, and I can see where you're like, you're saying where atheists would use it as a gotcha. Well, there's suffering in the world. There's children in Africa starving. Well, that's, I'm pretty jaded about that subject, but by and large, it's because the economics over there don't reflect the economics here. You know what I mean? I mean, there's kids starving in America too. I'm just saying like, I think there's a difference between suffering in that sense and pain. And I think people tend to kind of lump those pains that we feel as Christians in with suffering I think they need to be separated. Does that make sense? It does. And I don't necessarily disagree, but when I talk about suffering and pain, like as a result of sin, I'm talking about uh, under the umbrella of it's all a result of the consequence of the sin choice that we collectively made. Every bad thing we experience is a result of that choice to deviate and place ourselves out of fellowship with a morally absolute God. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And, you know, no matter what the suffering might look like, it all comes under the umbrella. We live in a world that is tainted and corrupted and fallen as a result of sin, of of essentially pushing God out. Mm-hmm. We essentially took the land deed of the of of the earth and handed it over to Satan. Is essentially what we did. Mm-hmm. And God, He didn't have to, but He essentially said, "I'm going to let you live through this for a few thousand years. I'm going to let you walk this road so you can see where it ends." Because the alternative. And I'm not, we're going to get into this in the bottom half, kind of what you referenced. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to think I'm being heartless here. I'm not. I know people that have suffered greatly, had extreme loss, and I'm not diminishing that. I'm not dismissing that. But the alternative to what I'm talking about here is for God to have eradicated the race and your loved one never to have existed at all. That was the alternative. It's the only other way. If he just snaps his fingers and eradicates sin, that means that means eradicating the sinful, too. Right? right? Eradicating the option to sin means eradicating those who could have ever sinned, or making them automatons. And if you're an automaton, you don't you don't even know that you have a loved one. <laughs> right. Right. You're not conscious anymore. I think you know. Consciousness is a result of having choice, individual choice. Without that, you're just a robot. You don't even know you exist. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. I mean, yeah, it's the, it's your ability to make choices and then your ability to deduct your, to deduct consequences or or rewards from those choices. Mm -hmm. You know, you could, it goes, you know, you could have the, well, I did something bad and I got punished for it, but I don't think I should have been punished for it. 
Right. Or you can have, I did something bad and I got punished. But, and, and I'm, I feel bad that I did that and I'm sorry and I repent and we move on, you know, or I did something good, but I not, didn't get nothing of it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so our, like our, our, our free will to make choices, but also our free will to interpret the outcomes of those choices. Right. That was said a lot better than I said it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, and this is why I didn't come in with a, with a, a real heavy outline because I didn't know how the conversation would go. Cause it is tough. It's a tough topic, right? And I know that those who have experienced suffering and loss to a greater degree than most, it's hard to hear, right? But realistically, no explanation is going to make you happy, right? Right. But at some point, we have to get past our anger at God. And we're going to get into that at the bottom half. We've got to get past our anger at God and accept that there is a reason. There is a purpose. And he is in control. And we need to surrender ourselves to that reason, to that purpose. Now, when you're like in the midst of the suffering in that moment, that does you no good. That's not what you want to hear. But at some point, you have to get yourself to a place where you're willing to hear it because mm. it does matter. And the, the church's typical response of ignoring his moral absolutism and, and given the, you know, goofy grin, you know, Jesus fixes everything response, you know, he doesn't always take away the consequences of sin. You know, not in the here and now. You know, eternally he does. But he's, you know, he's not going to wave a wand over you and, and make your life perfect. He didn't for Paul, right? Paul wrote Philippians from a place of misery, from a place of suffering. You know, most of the prophets went through, pardon, pardon to say it like this, they went through hell, went through, through absolute hell. They went through suffering. Right? I understand it's a difficult topic. I can't say that enough. I actually, let's, unless you guys have final thoughts on this one, I'll let you say what you want to say. If you have something to add, Micah, before we shift over. Nope. I want to shift into the, to the bottom half, because I think this is the, the harder one. The, the, that, the, the hard and fast intellectual theological reason to me is easier. It's maybe not easier to hear. It's easier to express. But how do you approach somebody who's in the midst of their suffering? That's what I want to talk about on the bottom half. So kind of have that rolling around. Basically what you just expressed, Chris. Like somebody that just, you know, lost their child. What do you say to them? Right? They probably don't want to hear this. No matter how true it is, probably don't want to hear it. Right? Right. So I think I want to talk about how we would respond to that. Like I say, we'll, we'll do that after the break. So we'll take our break first. We'll think about our responses to that and uh, let those of you listening process a little bit, I guess. As usual, we'll play our featured song uh, while we wait. Uh, This week it's going to be Don't Let Me Go by Mike Maranatha. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Catch you on the other side. Found you, Yahoo, we'll save my soul. I 
got questions, you got answers. Call collecting, you always answer off my chest. And I got my hands up, racked up dead, but you paid the ransom. I can never pay you back. But I pray you keep intact. My heart when it started to crack in the dark, it's hard to see where I'm at. But your law, it leads me back. It's a light into my path. And I trust it, I'ma see you when I hear that trumpet blast. When that trumpet blow, we gon' meet at last. You won't let me go, your glory unsurpassed. Can you help me see that you won't let me go? You ain't left me alone, yeah, you won't let me go. care for him and the son of man that you bear for him i think about the plans you prepared for him upon the wicked you will rain snares for them the ophanim and the seraphim they praise elohim with the cherubim so like them i'ma get on my knees i'ma pray god please i'ma cherish him father forgive me my transgressions help me speak truth on these jam sessions i need discernment grant me discretion i need your word and give me direction don't let me slip don't let me stray don't let me fall away don't let me falter from your altar what you call the way don't abandon my soul to hades light my lamp and don't hold the gravy now i lay me down to sleep i pray the father my soul to keep and if i die before i wake then please just don't forget about me yeah i give my heart to you i know that you know this about me So greasy, could have been dead on a gurney. It's been a journey. Yahoo and near me never leave me. And my life is proof that he is the truth. And he frees the captives. Please believe me. I had knots with a have not sin. What's a padlock in a bad spot? So needy. Hard knocks like bedrock, twisted like dreadlocks, stuck in a deadlock. He freed me freely. I had nothing and he'd feed me. And he gave me something to make me see. He's with me and I'm never alone. Yo, his word on my heart like it's embedded in stone. And I know he's beautiful. His love's unusual. With something so dang pure, I know I'm unsuitable. The way his ruach taught is so immutable. And he the king of my life that's undisputable. Oh
And we are back again. That was Don't Let Me Go by Mike Maranatha. Uh, continuing our discussion, before we before we move on to the next phase of it, I want to clarify something that, that was brought to my attention during our break. I'm not saying that the suffering that comes into your life is a direct consequence of your personal sin. That's not what I'm saying. So, so to Chris's analogy of, you know, I lost a child— I think where you were coming from, Chris, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, you know, somebody somebody comes and says, you know, I lost a child to disease or murder or something like that. You know, what did I do to deserve that? What did my child do to deserve that? That's not what I'm addressing. With my response on why does sin exist and why did the father, why was he presented with a scenario where he had to deal with sin in the way that he did? I'm not saying that your individual suffering is a direct consequence of your personal sin. That's not what I'm saying. You see that with the blind man. I forget well what chapter that's in. When Jesus heals the blind man and, and the Pharisees mm-hmm. automatically, who sinned, this man yes. or his parents? He's like, neither. His blindness wasn't caused by sin. Yep. Now, suffering can be caused by sin. Yes, It can be a result of that, but it's not automatically a result of that. Right. What I'm talking about is species-wide, collectively speaking, worldwide, Sin entered the world. Yes. Right? What? That's what I'm talking about is sin entering into the world and sin causing suffering onto the world. Yes. Why does God allow that to persist? And the reason he allows that to persist is because we have to learn the lesson. Species-wide, we have to learn the lesson. There's un- unfortunate consequences to that, right? Mm-hmm. But the only alternative is to stamp it out, which means stamping us out. Right, including the ones that he wants to come to repentance. That's what I'm talking about. I just wanted to clarify that. I'm not saying if you've suffered like extreme loss, I'm not pointing the finger at you and saying you're a sinner, you deserved it. That's not even close to what I'm saying. And you'll you'll see in an example that I'll give as this, you know, bottom half of the episode moves forward, I think you'll see my heart in this a little bit more. But did you have something you wanted to clarify, Chris? No, no, I mean that's kinda I mean, I guess I I think that's kind of what I was trying to get at with the difference between the suffering and the pain is um, collectively we all feel pain, but that suffering, like you said, is. We got to silence my phone again. Go. Oh, dun, dun, dun. It's been weeks, weeks since position. I've done that. Oh, man. That's okay. You got distracted. You remember what you were saying? Yeah, I know. Um, I mean, yeah, it's pretty much a radiation reiteration of what you said is, is it's, you know, what, what kicked the ball or you know started the rocks rolling downhill that's a good know, way of putting it yeah and and we're still we're still we're at the bottom or we might even be halfway down the hill but we're getting hit with, it, with boulders yeah we're hitting with yeah. a pile of rocks and then the people below us are you know until they can look up and see hey that person just got hit by this ton of boulders maybe i should move mm-hmm. we're not at that point yet yeah you know and i don't think until it's my personal belief until the second coming, we won't ever be in that place. No, I, I and I think, and I feel like, and that's what you're saying is it's not, you know, you know, you're not necessarily feeling while it can be, you're not necessarily feeling that pain because you directly sinned. It's just the point of the fact that, you know, the paradigm shifted when, when, when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the forbidden fruit and 
the sinner centered in vice versa punishments to correct the sin came in mm-hmm. yeah we, we we didn't know the anguish of losing a loved one before that paradigm shift right we didn't know the 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 pain of having somebody taken away from i keep going back to that i don't know why um we didn't we, just, we didn't know that pain until after that paradigm shift mm-hmm. and it's just like you said it's a collective thing yeah. I, I, but I, that's kind of what i was trying to i didn't know how to exactly get to that point of you know say hey it's not always necessarily a direct result of your sin yes right yeah what i'm engaging in or what i engaged in in the the top half was more apologetics why is it why is it why does it exist Mm -hmm. and why is god still a good god and a loving god for allowing it to exist there is a reason there is a response there is purpose and purpose in the pain like i said that you know that is true and i again i i stand by my statement i think the church largely speaking is very very grossly failed in explaining that because they don't like where the answer leads them I think mm-hmm. is a lot of the is a lot of the problem. I don't think any of us really like where it leads us while we're living right. in you know the consequences yeah. of sin. You put it perfectly, you know, going down a hill and getting pelted with boulders. What my you know apologetic response from the top half is dealing with is why are the boulders rolling down the hill? Yeah. Why are we getting pelted with boulders? But how do you respond to somebody getting pelted with the boulders? Right, especially the big ones. Yeah. Right. Let me kind of share where this topic really came from. So last week I had jury duty. I know. Talk about suffering, right? Mm-hmm. What was my sin? <laughs> but I met a guy there. And uh, for some reason it really hit me hard. But he just started sharing his story a little bit. You know, we were kind of chit-chatting. I didn't even get this guy's name. I, I really regretted later. I was pretty guilt-stricken over it. I guess I felt like I should have said more. But I really think it was more for me than for him, maybe for this. And I'm going to have a question for you, Micah, at the mm-hmm. end of this, because I, I, I don't have an answer. And I'm hoping that you do. But he shared a little bit of his life story, and somebody had made mention of his retirement. He was a retirement age, and he mentioned that he worked for the, for the uh, uh, railroad. And they're like, well, you have, probably have a pretty good retirement. He's like, yeah, it's all right, I guess. And just out of nowhere, after a few minutes, he started talking. He's like, you know, really, you know, the money's good. My retirement hasn't been too good for me. He's like, I've retired. I can't remember what year he said, but he's like, in, in whatever year he retired, he retired January 15th. Two weeks later, his wife was dead, mm-hmm. brain cancer. So it hit out of nowhere. And it, it hit her really hard and really fast. Got remarried. And within a few months, she was dead. Cancer. Hmm. Got married a third time. Within a few months, she got breast cancer and she died too. Yikes. Wow. Three. Hmm. All cancer. And uh, I don't know, it hit me hard. I got kind of emotional about it. Didn't really know what to say. I don't know if I was really supposed to, what can you say? And, uh, we were getting called back out to see who got picked and who didn't, right? And I was just kind of joking with him because we were, you know, like I say, chit-chatting, small-talking. I'm like, did you say your prayers? You know, about not getting picked. And he kind of smiled, and he's like, yeah. But then, like, the smile vanished, and he's like, they usually don't do any good, though. Mm. 
And uh, I didn't know what else to say, man. I'm just like, you know, well, I'm a firm believer that God answers prayers. Sometimes we just don't like the answer we get. And left it at that. And he's like, yeah. And neither neither one of us got picked. And I'm like, I told you, told you God answers prayers. And he kind of smiled. And that was, that was it. That was the last I talked to him. But it really, I don't know why it really bothered me. I know, again, the apologetic, theological, correct, biblical answer for why suffering like that exists. But how do you respond to somebody like that? Who's been touched by it, been pelted with the boulders repeatedly, battered repeatedly. And obviously they've lost a little bit of hope. You can tell by the way he responded to the to the prayer comment. I don't know if it's anger, it probably was at first. But I think it's that anger maybe just shifted to I don't know. I don't know what it shifted to. How do you respond to somebody like that? As a as a pastor, I know you've dealt with people who have come to you, who've suffered loss. That apologetic response does no good. Well, this is why sin exists. This is why suffering exists. This is why your wives had to die. That doesn't help. Correct. That doesn't help. It may be the right answer. It may be a good response to a militant atheist. It's not a good answer to somebody like that. So how would you respond? And, and that's the unfortunate, or that's, I shouldn't say the unfortunate, but that's the, that's the issue, is there's no right answer. Because mm-hmm. in those moments, the, you're right. There's nothing that you're going to say. You can tell them it's because of sin. It's at that moment, it's not going to going to do any good. And I think, you know, the father deals with us like he deals with children. And every, and this isn't going to help, but this kind of just gives background. But each one of my children are different. They have different temperaments. They have different personalities. Uh, Micah, when he was growing up, I could just look at him sternly or maybe say a harsh word to him and he would listen and straighten up. Now, obviously that's changed since he's been in the military, but that, <laughs> you know, my other son, he, he's a little bit more stubborn that that response isn't going to work. It would take a spanking or it would take some, some harsher consequences to get his attention. And so again, this is kind of background because it doesn't solve that issue. Correct. Um, it's a theological, it's a theological answer and that, and that doesn't help, but I think God deals with us differently and God gets our attention in different ways. And when somebody is going through that moment, it's doing exactly what you did. It's not saying a whole lot. It's listening to them. And what I would normally do is I would say, tell me a little bit about your background, you know, to get them, get them to talk. Because in that moment, they need to see the love of God in action, not in words. Right. And what I mean is they need to know, sometimes I will sit at the hospital with people in those situations, and I will not say a whole lot. I'll just, I'll put my arm around them, I'll pray with them, I'll, I'll be a shoulder to cry on for them. And when I leave there, they'll look at me and go, thank you so much, Pastor, that was the best thing and I'll sit in my car on the way home from Columbia because it's a 30-minute drive, and I'll go, I don't really do a whole lot. I'm just there. But to them. But to them, it means so much. And I think in those moments when we experience people in those deep sufferings, yes, they need to know the theological, and they'll get there. 
But in that moment, they're not going to get there by you sharing what we shared in the first part of the podcast. They don't need the Bible thrown at them. They don't need, oh, you need to read this. You need to get in your Bible more and you need to read this scripture. They need to see the body of Christ loving on people and putting it into action. And they need to know that there are people that care about them. That they are not left out there, abandoned. They're not walking this road alone. That maybe not to that extreme, but there are other people that have experienced great loss and great suffering and not not knowing why. We just, a pastor, pastor friend of mine, he's not necessarily a close friend, but a pastor friend of mine just this week lost his wife. She was pretty healthy. She was, there was no, I mean, she wasn't sick. She wasn't, they were having revival at their church. Friday night, she was at the church cleaning stuff up, getting stuff set up for the weekend and getting stuff set up for our Sunday. And Saturday morning, she woke up and she was dead. They assume a heart attack is the, what they assume. But as of right now, I don't know the answer. They may know. I mean, he may know. But all of a sudden like that. Mm-hmm. And, no indication and, yeah, of nothing. Yes, yeah. and he's a pastor. And so, I mean, again, I'm not saying that makes him better or worse than anybody else. But do you think he doesn't know the theological response to that? Right, but it's the last thing he needs to Exactly. Do. But what he needs is people to come around him and to put their arm around him. Say, I'm praying for you. And I, and that, And that's one of the things that I said to him at the... At the funeral, I was like, I'm not going to, I said, I'm not going to ask you how you're doing because I know you're tired of answering that question, but I'm here for you, man. And if you need anything, I'm a phone call, I'm a text away. And that was it. I mean, that's not a theological answer. That's not a brainstorming, you know, rocket science. Oh, this is going to be the cure. But I pray that that will impact him. And he sent me a text afterwards and just said, Thank you so much. I don't know what that means. I'm not saying that I was great and made a great influence. But it was enough that he he thanked me afterwards, sent me a text and said, thank you. And I think partly it's because we try too hard. We try to make something happen. And I know I'm going long, so I apologize. No, don't don't talk about your answer. But I, I, I think we try too hard. We try to make that theological response. Mm-hmm. We try to make something happen. We try to make, okay, I've got to give them, they're, 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 they weren't, they're wanting an answer. We think we have to say something that's going to completely change yes. their course yes. and fix yeah. everything yeah. right there in five minutes. And, right. and there's, and there's not anything that you're going to say in that moment that's going to do that, but right. it's being there. Go ahead. Oh, I mean, I don't mean to interrupt no, your flow, no, but good. I think, I think there's a little bit of, of selfishness in that. Um, and and our response to that is we want to be the ones that fix to say the exact right things to fix it when we need to to shift the paradigm over to we're not gonna we can't fix that person. Yeah. God fixes that person. God heals that pain, not us. Yes. And and that's where but but we want to do that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, so, you know, we're I guess that I guess that's I I don't know if selfish is the right word. I I had a word popped into my head, and I lost it. I don't think it was selfish, but but it's that it's that sense of of we want we want to fix that, 
because it's our nature. Yeah. But when, but when, what, when reality, the only person that can fix that is him. And and the and the reality is they do need that theological response eventually. Eventually, yeah, they do need to know God's God's here for you, even though you're going through this struggle, even though through you're going through this pain. God hasn't abandoned you. He's not taking his hand off your life and saying, okay, good luck. You know, everything's going to fall apart. You're going to go through, like you said in the first episode, first part of the episode, you're going to go through hell. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not that they need to know, they need to know the theological, but what they need more is to see. They don't need me to, I mean, there's sometimes I don't even, you know, people look at me funny, like you're a pastor, you're not going to read a verse. Sometimes I do. A lot of times I do. A lot of times I don't. I have it there for reference if the Spirit tells me to, it brings a verse to mind that I need to share with Him. But a lot of times, I'm just there. I'm just listening. I'm listening to them. I don't know if that answers your, your question, but I think they're very fra- it's a very fragile moment. And I think sometimes we need to be, be Christ in action. So, so would you agree that when you're when you're approaching someone who's in the midst of suffering, the most important thing you can do is to be the vessel to remind them that God's love is present even in that. Yes. As opposed to, yeah. to saying something they're probably going to forget about yeah. five minutes later anyway, just showing them that his love's there. Yeah. And it needs to be a heartfelt response. I want to emphasize that because I think sometimes we're, well, God's in control. You know, God is sovereign. That's the theological side that we talked about in the first part. Right. God's sovereign. He's in control. He'll get you through it. But that's true, but... <laughs> it's not helpful. It's not helpful to them in that moment. I'm I mean, big... you're talking about directly when they're going through this moment. Yes, you know, in the and, midst and, of it. Yeah. yeah, in the midst of that, they don't need a quick, flippant, spiritual response. And I don't mean to say that lightly or, or irreverently, but... No, it's the truth. They don't need a they don't need a flippant response. They need to see us actually do I really believe that God loves me even through hard times? Then I'm going to put that into action by putting my arm around somebody and praying with them and letting them letting them cry on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. Giving them a hug. You know, it depends on how well you know the person, of course, but you know, if we know the person well, maybe a little longer hug. Mm-hmm. Means a lot more than a flippant spiritual phrase. I'm a big believer that if you want to be involved in, in ministry and be in the hands of feet, which we all should want that, yes. one of the most important things we can pray and, and ask of him is to train our heart to feel for others what he feels. Yeah. Because people see through fake. Yeah. And I and I do pray, you know, I when I'm going, you know, that's one of the advantages of living in a small town is usually it's 30 minutes to the hospital <laughs> and I've got time to be by myself and pray a little bit and say, God, give me the right words to say. Give me the right words at that moment. Give, you know, give the, give me the words or help me not say anything at all. Right. Show me when silence is the best response. Yeah. And I, and I think ultimately we get a feel and maybe this should have been talked about in the first part of the theological side, but I think we get a feel what you said, what the father feels, the heavenly father. I mean, imagine what it's like for him to see his children disobedient, straying away to a point that he puts his own son on that cross Mm -hmm. for us because he loved us. 
That's love in action. Yeah. There's this problem with sin. Yes. But I love you. And I'm going to send my son to pay. I'm going to put the payment for sin because he's the only one worthy to take that punishment. And he's going to experience suffering and pain. Unlike anything any of us have experienced. Exactly. I think it's important to remember that, that yeah. no matter how much we're suffering, the payment he made was so much worse. Yeah. And I think in those moments, people see who their genuine friends are. And, and I don't mean to say that judgmentally. I know it sounds that way, but I don't mean it that way. But we'll talk later, Chris, by the way. You know, the, yeah, I'm joking. <laughs> the, you know, the, the genuine friends that are going to be there for, for them. Right. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are going to sit there for hours and maybe not say a thing. Maybe listen to them go on and on and on about how, because maybe that's just what they need. Mm-hmm. Somebody to listen right. to them. I think the, the heart going into those situations is important. Yes. I think you, you hit the nail on the head is, uh, you know, on the way over or in the midst of it to, to pray the prayer of essentially let me be the tool or conduit for your will in this. If your will is telling me or if your will is for me to say these words, I say these words. If your will is for me just to be there, I think that's the, that's the most important thing. And I think that's where the people that are really affected are the ones that, because you're a conduit in that in that instance, you're the that's the most impactful to them. Like you said, people come and go and they say things all day long, but until they feel that genuine, I don't know, feeling of love, yeah. that that's the that's the one that sticks. I I don't want to trail off too much, but and it might be kind of silly, but. Recently, I read a story to my daughter. Um, and I can't, I can't remember the name of the book, but essentially, it was a young child had built a <clears throat> a toy or built a house of blocks, and a strong wind came by and blew the blew the blocks down, and the child was devastated. Well, along comes the bear. And the bear says, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to stomp and 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 be mad and roar and 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 be mad. And that didn't help. So the bear left. And then, you know, here comes the owl. Well, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to rebuild it strong taller. And this is what you need to do. And all these animals came and went and told him, This is what you need to do. And as soon as he kind of as as soon as the boy didn't respond, the animals left. But then here comes the bunny. And I kind of kind of don't like the fact that it was a bunny that came. But we'll, <laughs> we'll get into those semantics later on. But basically, all the bunny did was just be there. And it sat next to him. And it said the boy could feel the bunny's heat. And knew he was there. And eventually, the boy reached out and hugged the bunny. And then after he hugged the bunny... Then he said, then he described how angry he was. And then he told the bunny what he was going to do to rebuild. And then he told the bunny this, and he told the bunny that, and he told the bunny everything that all the other people wanted the response from. 
but had left because they didn't get that response. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's where, and the only reason that I brought that up was I, it's, it's kind of, it's like in that simple story we see where the, and to me, the bunny was God's love. If God's love is there, eventually that person will reach out and, and accept that, that love. And then that's when they learn. This is the theological parts of it. Mm-hmm. But until they feel that, you know, there's people coming and going. Yeah. And that's, and I feel like that's what a lot of people do is they say, well, here's what you need to do. And they try to give that perfect response. And when they don't get anything, they go, oh, I can't do anything more here. And then they leave mm-hmm. either metaphorically or physically leave and then that person is left there with nothing until the next person comes along. Hmm. Until the person comes in with that right love in their heart and just radiates that and they can feel that. That's, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, sorry, it's kind of a side trail, but. No, it wasn't. That's, yeah. What you guys have both talked about is very confirming to me because when I was really agonizing, and I did agonize over a lot. It really bothered me that I didn't feel like I had the right response or what I what I thought was the right response, right? Because I'm one of those guys that, you know, um, a matter of fact, I'm intellectual. I feel like I have to have this perfect response to you, verbal. You know what I mean? Uh, learning how to love has been a process for me. I've shared that on the podcast before, but where he really uh, inclined me to when I was struggling with this was Luke chapter 11, the, the resurrection of Lazarus. Hmm. And it has one of my... I've, shared before it's one of my favorite verses in all scripture and it's the shortest verse in all scripture luke eleven thirty five. jesus wept that's all it says yeah. but when you really unpack that account uh jesus was told that lazarus was sick and dying and when you do the when you do the logistics on where he was at he had more than enough time to get there mm-hmm. right sure. he, he tarries for three days we're told yep. now lazarus had two sisters mary and martha correct yes they knew where Jesus was because they sent someone to get him. Yep. So they knew how close he was. He probably could have made it there in a day. Mm-hmm. He chooses to wait three days, yep. which means by the time he gets there, Lazarus is dead. And he could have gotten there in time. Yep. He chose not to. I think sometimes we approach that and we think that he was three days journey away. So he couldn't get there in time. That's not true. He was maybe a half day's journey mm-hmm. away. He could have got there in time. He didn't for a reason, right? We know that. On, on this side of the account, we know what that reason was. We know why he tarried, but the sisters didn't. Sisters didn't know that. So when he gets there, the first sister comes to him and falls down at his feet. And she's like, if you had just gotten here a little sooner. Yeah. And we read that as just text on a page, but I think you can feel the emotion coming from that because I think she loves Jesus. She reveres him, but I think she might be a little upset. Mm-hmm. I think it may be coming from a place of anger. You could have could have gotten here on time. You're a healer. You could have healed him if you had just come right away. You That's know, what I you hear. Know, you know God's will. You know what it was to happen here. Yeah. And he responds to her very simply. He's like, to the first sister, do you believe? Do you trust? I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but he's like, you know, Lazarus will rise. Well, she misunderstands what he's saying. Mm-hmm. She's like, I believe that he'll, he'll be resurrected on the last day. And he leaves it at that. He doesn't give her a big, long theological apologetic on why Lazarus had to die or why he had to tarry. He doesn't give her a 30-minute sermon. He doesn't give her an explanation. 
gives her hope. He gives her hope in his presence. Then he moves on, and then the other sister comes. Same thing. Falls down at his feet, weeping, crying, and says the same thing. If you had just gotten here sooner, you know, why did you wait? And he doesn't, he doesn't even respond in the same way as the other sister. All he does is weep with her. That's where that verse comes from. Jesus wept. He didn't choose to give her, again, a big, long apologetic, a 30-minute sermon, or a lecture on why she should have more faith in the midst of her suffering. He chose to feel what she... Now, remember, he knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus. So I don't believe he's weeping for Lazarus' death here. Correct. I think that's important. He knew Lazarus, Lazarus was going to be resurrected. Even if he didn't, it's Yeshua, it's Jesus we're talking about here. Right. He knows that Lazarus is in heaven. Exactly. Right? He wasn't weeping for Lazarus, I don't believe. I don't believe either. I believe he chose in that moment to feel what she felt. I believe he chose to feel what she felt, and rather than lecturing her, he wept with her. He wept with her. He showed her in the moment of her suffering that he cared. He didn't explain to her why suffering exists. He didn't explain to her what I, what I did in the, in the top half of the episode and give this explanation for why God has to deal with sin and part of sin is death. And this is why, I, you know, this, these are the things that I have to do. And he didn't lecture with that. He just showed her that even in the midst of her, of her suffering, God's love was still there. Hmm. And it mattered. That was my takeaway. So that's why I wanted to turn it over to you and to you, Mike, and you, Chris, first. And like what you've said is confirms to me what I feel like he was pressing on me and teaching me through this. It's not always about an explanation. Correct. People don't always need an explanation. Eventually, like you said, Mike, eventually they will need that. Right. Eventually they have to get to a place where they can accept the explanation. That's part of growth. But in the midst of the suffering, that's the last thing they need last thing they need they just need to see his love reflected to him because they're probably in a place where they don't feel his love they've they their suffering has numbed them to his love and they need to see it yes. badly yes i agree casting i hope i don't want to get in get in trouble with copyright stuff but casting crown sings a song that says love him like jesus and in that song we have good reminds, lawyers i'll fight it right exactly it says you know it says um you know you're holding their hand, straining for words. You don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. and, and I've been there so often. But then it says, love them like Jesus, carry them to him. His, you know, his burden is light. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. You know, basically what it's saying is, be there. Yeah. The explanation will come later. In the moment, be there. Love on them. That's the most important thing that they need. Then there's a picture in the body of Christ where it talks about us functioning as a body. And I think we miss it sometimes because we talk about knowing significant parts and each part having its purpose. And all that's true. But it says, we weep with those who weep. And we rejoice with those who rejoice. Yep. And I think in those moments, the body of Christ needs to weep with those that weep. That's why I think it's important to ask him to feel yep. what he feels. Yeah. To be able to, because Jesus wept with genuineness. It wasn't yeah. fake. Yeah. He wept with genuineness with them, and we have to get to a place where we can do the same. Yeah. Coming to the, the close, or getting to the point where we're going to kind of round out the episode, I want to talk a little bit about where suffering 
can or should lead us hmm. where where I would hope it would lead us. And I'm not sharing this flippantly. Stephanie, my wife, she suggested that I share this because she believes it's important. Now, you know, we can talk about suffering all we want, but for the most part, most people listening, I haven't suffered. If you've suffered something grievous, I probably haven't suffered quite like you have. But I can promise you, Stephanie has. And she wanted me to share this. She's not real secretive about it, but I doubt, I doubt you two know. I just wanted to air that out to make sure nobody thought that I was sharing this out of turn. It was her, it was her suggestion. Now you guys probably know she deals with some, some pretty major like social anxiety. It's caused a lot of problems. Like honestly, Chris, you and I have, I've lost friends that you and I both had because of, of what she deals with. She's tried to keep it as hidden as possible, but you can only hide it so much. And I've seen the way she's been treated. It's, it's ruined friendships. I'll be open and honest about that. The reason she suffers with that is because on her 17th birthday, she was raped. That's what the cause of it is. Now, it was very, very traumatic. And ever since, she's dealt with post-traumatic stress disorder over it. And that's caused a lot of suffering. A lot of suffering for her. That she's never been able to fully shake. Right? It causes anxiety. causes um, depression. I'm not going to get real long-winded into it, but she expressed to me she was on a road that was not leading to him when that happened. And as much as I'm sure she would wish that she didn't have to go through it, she's told me and told me to share this when I shared her story that if it hadn't been for that event that she went through, she wouldn't have sought answers from him. It led her to him. Now, her siblings never went through anything like that, and they are about as godless as you can get. And she's told me point blank I would have been just like them. Judgmental, ugly, hateful, and godless. But because God allowed extreme suffering and trauma and evil to enter into her life, it led her to him. I know it's, I don't know how to express what I want to say. I wish no one had to suffer. Mm. I do. I wish she never had to go through what she went through. I wish no one ever had to go through what she went through or anything remotely like it. I wish she didn't have to be treated the way she's been treated because there are consequences to the suffering she's been through. And but because people don't know the story and don't see behind the veil, right? They, they judge the impact that it's had on her. But if that's the only way to get to a place where we're truly in love with him. I'm not sure I'd have it any other way. It's hard to say. And it's hard to live like you really believe it, right? But it's the truth. There is purpose in the pain. 
and know that when you're in the midst of it, it's hard to see that. I'm sure in the midst of her rape, she couldn't see purpose in that. Mm. There's no way that she looked forward in the middle of that event and said, oh, there's a reason for this happening. It's okay. It's all right. I'm sure she didn't feel like that the next day or the next week or the next year. It took time. It took a lot of time for her to get to a place where she could look back on the path it put her on and see that, you know what, where I am now, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And the only reason I'm here is because I had to walk that road. Mm-hmm. I want to close this out by looking at to that, to that end, what we typically call the thief on the cross, mm-hmm. right? First off, he wasn't a thief. <laughs> we, we call him that based upon the Greek word used in, in the gospel accounts. And I'm not going to say it's a bad translation, but it's a little misleading. Now the, when, I, when I talk about the thief, I'm talking about the two, the two individuals, the two men who are crucified with Jesus on either side. And uh, talk about suffering. They shared in the suffering of Jesus there. And we, we talked last week, I believe it was, about the, the horrors of crucifixion, didn't we? Was it last week? No, it was an episode I'm I'm currently editing. Right. So at the at the time of upload, it'll be a couple weeks ago. I believe it was Who's Mark. Mm-hmm. I believe it was the first Who's Mark episode. Well, we talked about the horrors of crucifixion, how how awful it was. Now, first off, you know, the reason I want to highlight that they weren't just thieves is Rome didn't just crucify anybody. Right. We have a, a little bit of a of a, an inaccurate an inaccurate view of the Roman Empire. They didn't crucify petty thieves. Right? They weren't that that free and loose with crucifixion. They would have been dealing with a lot more rebellion if they were. In all likelihood, it was it was pretty serious offenses, usually murder or insurrection, and that's what I believe they were guilty of. And the reason for that, and I'm gonna they're they're mentioned in all four gospel accounts, but the two most important for their story is Matthew and Luke. We get the most information. John just sort of references them in passing that two men were crucified with them. And Mark does something similar to what we call robbers or thieves were crucified. My translation says robbers. I think the King James says thieves. I could be wrong. Possibly. It doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. Because I'm going to talk about the, the So in Luke, it's usually translated something like criminals were crucified with him. Right? And that's uh, the Greek word... Kakurgos, and that's a pretty accurate translation. It actually means evildoer. So it, 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 it implies something a little stronger than what we think of as just a regular criminal. It's, it's pretty extreme is what it seems to imply. Sure. But where we get the word thief is from Matthew and Mark. And in those two gospel accounts, it uses the Greek word lastes. And it does mean robber, but more accurately, it means a bandit or a highwayman. And they did steal but at the expense of typically killing the people they stole from. Uh, for example, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think that's Luke chapter 10, the robbers, I'm doing air quotes. Why do I do that on the podcast? <laughs> Give air quotes, Chris. Why do I do that? Psychologically, can you explain that to me? No? Uh, I, you know, maybe it's because you're used to talking to me Probably. so much and you're like, all right, how can I explain this? <laughs> air quotes. Hey, yeah, there it is. That's probably it. <laughs> So the robber, they call them robbers in that parable that left the, the man for dead, that the Good Samaritan rescued, 
Zleistes. Mm-hmm. It's the same Greek word. They were highwaymen. They were bandits. Right? It's a little worse than just mm-hmm. typical thieves. And you sort of get an indication of this in the, the Luke account. Now, I'm not going to read them both. They're, the accounts I'm talking about, it's Matthew chapter 27, verses 38 and 44, and Luke chapter 23, verses 33 and 43. We get these are two different gospel accounts with two different perspectives on the same events. Right? So they're focused on different um, details. They're both accurate. They're right. both they're both telling us the truth. But to get the full uh, to get the full understanding of what occurred, you need to take both accounts and put them together because we get two different perspectives. So Matthew, when he's talking about the the individuals that were crucified with him, he says that they were both mocking Jesus. He says that everybody that were at the crucifixion site. The Pharisees and the scribes, they were mocking Jesus. And it says that both of the individuals that were crucified with him engaged in mocking him also. Both of them did. Right? And when we come to the Luke account, something changes. And it's fascinating to me because he's, he specifies that one was mocking. Now, Matthew tells us that they both were. So we know both were mocking him. But at some point, one of those criminals had a change of heart. And he turns to the other criminal And he says, why are you mocking him? He's innocent. We deserve this. Now, remember, Chris, we talked about the crucifixion, how how difficult it was to even speak. Yeah. So even speaking was painful. And there's, you know, that's kind of telling that they were, at one point, they were both willing to cause themselves more pain to mock the Messiah. But at some point, this other individual, this other criminal has a change of heart, and he puts himself in pain to say, he's innocent. He's innocent. We've got to stop. We deserve this. And he's not saying, you know, we were wrongfully accused by the Roman Empire, or we were just stealing to satisfy our hunger, and we don't really deserve the extremities of this. He's suffering the crucifixion, and he says, we deserve what's happening, which tells me they were guilty of some pretty heinous crimes. I believe, just as as a side note, it's uh, it's earlier in Luke chapter twenty three, uh, talks about Barbas, uh, the one that Pilate offered in place of mm-hmm. Jesus. So he put two two criminals up, and they would get to allow one to go free. It was Pilate's way of trying to wash his hands of the whole situation. He thought for sure they'd pick Jesus to mm-hmm. set free. Well, they yeah. didn't. They picked Barabbas. And I think the reason he thought they would pick Jesus is because Barabbas was guilty of some heinous crimes. Yeah. And we learn that from Luke. It uses that same term for Barabbas as a, uh, as well, it, it uses the same term in, in the John account, I believe, as a laystace, a highwayman. Right. But it specifies in, I believe it's John, chapter 18, verse 40, that he was a murderer. Sorry, it's Luke chapter 23, verse 19. It specifies he was a murderer. Getting everything mixed up. I right. apologize. This is, like I said, we have to take all four gospel accounts and put them together. But it specifies that Barabbas was guilty of murder and insurrection. So they were zealots. They were, they were fighting against Rome, but they also were murdering people. I think what they were doing is they were probably falling upon... Um, Roman sympathizers or Roman citizens and murdering them and taking their goods. Mm-hmm. It's probably what they were what they were specifically guilty of. The reason I think, sorry, I'll turn it over to you in a second because I can tell you want to ask or, or say something. I think the reason it's important to highlight that Bar- Barabbas was a murderer is it says that he was arrested with the other insurrectionists. I believe that he was supposed to be the third individual crucified. 
they had the crucifixion prepped and ready for three individuals. Now, when Barabbas gets set free, Jesus gets put on that third cross. I think he was supposed to have been crucified that day because I think those three individuals were arrested together. I believe that's what the gospel accounts implying there. He was arrested in prison with the other insurrectionists, the other laystays, the other robbers, the other bandits, and they were guilty of murder. So when that, the thief, the thief, when the robber, the bandit that has the change of heart says we're guilty and we deserve this, I think he's looking back at their crimes and they're guilty of murder. I think it's important. The reason I think that's important is because of what happens next. Did you have something, Chris? Yeah, I think this might be me projecting what I was either taught or saw, but I was I was under the impression that, uh, and and I and I general general consensus is I agree, but that the that there was a lot of criminals that were supposed to be crucified as a an example to the Hebrew people of Roman justice. Like they were, but, and then that's where he, so he, and then he would, Barabbas was pulled as he was the worst of the lot. And like you said, Pilate thought there was no way the worst, the worst of the worst criminals that I have that are to be, to be, to be crucified as an example they wouldn't, they would choose Jesus and they didn't. Uh, and that's what I'm saying. I, that's where I thought that that's, that was, I guess that was my question. I thought that it was a, that there was, like you said, it was orchestra. He's like, I have these, the slot that I'm going to be crucifying. I'll pick the worst, put him against Jesus and then let the people choose. It never states he was the worst. Okay. It never states that. It says that it says what he was guilty of. It says that he was arrested with the other insurrectionists, and they. It implies that they were guilty of insurrection and murder. It never necessarily says that Barabbas was the worst. It just says that what he was personally guilty of. Okay. And and the reason I believe that he had to have been guilty of crimes other than not just against Roman soldiers, but against civilians also, is he was sure that they would never want. Like he's he's putting this up to the Jewish people right, the citizens mm-hmm. of Jerusalem, and he doesn't think that they'll choose Barabbas. Now, I don't believe Pilate was dumb. If Barabbas was only guilty of fighting in an armed conflict with Roman soldiers that were oppressing the Jewish people, he would have known that they, they, they wouldn't want him crucified. Barabbas had to have been guilty of some other crimes. Right. It was more than just insurrection, which tells me these other two were guilty of some other things too. And again, Rome, Rome didn't just crucify anybody. Right. When you see these these instances of mass crucifixion, I know I'm getting under the weeds a little bit. When you see these instances of mass crucifixion in in the Roman histories, it's usually to put down a rebellion as an example. For example, like the Spartacus Rebellion. They crucified the ones that engaged in that rebellion all up and down the road to Rome. That wasn't something that was was the norm. Right. That was something to set an example for future rebellions. They did something similar when they sacked Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and when the people were trying to escape, they were crucifying them outside of the city so the people inside would see to try to get them to surrender. Mm-hmm. But it's not something that you saw all the time. Right. I'm, not, I'm not defending Rome. Rome was an evil empire. I'm not saying that they were good. 
any 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 empire that would crucify even one person there's something seriously demented and wrong there what i'm saying is they weren't just just crucifying somebody for stealing an apple because i think that's what we kind of think of is you know these guys were being crucified for absolutely nothing no they were they were probably guilty of some pretty heinous stuff i would have to guess yeah I would and agree. the one this this bandit who has the change of heart admits we deserve this now if you were not guilty you would never say, while you're hanging on a cross, I deserve what's happening to me. To me, this is, this is evidence of somebody who's in the midst of his suffering. After he's lashed out at Jesus while he's suffering, he's mocked him. At some point, he's had time to reflect. And now he's looking back on the things that put him on the cross. And he's acknowledging and confessing, I did it. I'm guilty and I deserve it, right? And the reason I'm mentioning this, my takeaway for this week, the reason I'm mentioning these two is because of what Luke says happens after this, is that he reflects on this. This is probably somebody who's dealt with the suffering in the world his entire life. Something put him on the path to be a bandit that ended up on the cross, right? When you look at criminal behavior, typically there's something that happened or a series of some things that happened that put them on that path, right? Criminality just doesn't come out of nowhere, mm-hmm. right? But he looks back on that, on this road that his suffering put him on. Where did it lead him? It led him to be hanging on a cross next to the one and only person that could forgive him and heal him. Pain had purpose. Because well, he turns after this. After he chastises the other thief, and he turns to Yeshua, and he says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom, which, which by the way, is an affirmation of faith. Mm-hmm. He's saying, he doesn't say, if you are who you say you are, can you maybe remember me? He's saying, remember me. Yep. He's affirming that Jesus is who he says he was. And after being mocked by this murderer, Jesus turns to him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. His response to a vile sinner who deserved to be crucified, who just mocked him hours before, says, you'll be with me. You'll be with me in paradise. Don't worry. Your faith healed you. Hmm. All because his suffering led him to hang on a cross right next to him. And the reason this is important is I think these two bandits on the cross represent the crossroad that suffering brings all of us to. There are one of two options that we can take. We can choose, like the bad bandit, to become so bitter on account of our suffering that we mock our Savior with no repentance and enter into oblivion like he did. Or we can be like the other bandit, who comes to the place, even in the midst of our suffering, and acknowledges, he still loves me. I'm not suffering this because he's a bad God. I'm suffering this because I or we as a species did something to bring it on ourselves. Mm. And he can heal us. He can bring us into, into the kingdom. He can bring us into eternity. Those are the two choices you have presented to you, even in the midst of your suffering. Stephanie went through suffering, extreme suffering, 
she still suffers as a result of it. And she chose to set aside her bitterness and look to the one who can heal her. And you can too. I don't care what you've suffered. I care what you've suffered. But you can get through it by looking to him. Because he loves you. He always has. And he always will. Just look to him. Do we have any final thoughts? We want to leave it at that. Can you top that, Chris? Come on. Mm, What if I give you five minutes to think of something? No, I don't. I don't think I can. (laughs) I'm not going to top that, but the final thought would be when we experience and deal with people with suffering and they have time to reflect and look back, what will they see? This is the pastor mode in me application for us as we close what will they see will they see Job's three friends that mock him and say this is the reason why you're going through this or will they see the love of Christ reaching out holding them and experiencing his genuine unconditional love for us Amen those of you on the other side of the mic, thank you so much for listening and including us in your day. Before you go, don't forget to follow our podcast, leave a positive review, and click the bell icon to be notified whenever we upload new episodes. Also, feel free to join us on social media and share any feedback, questions, or discussion ideas you might have. Links are in the description. Additionally, you can't get enough of my voice. Search for the Broken Record Ministries podcast for more content for your ear holes. Specifically, look up an episode called Live on Air, I believe it was. I have a pretty awesome story that I shared on that episode, and I think you'll be interested to hear it. As always, we pray that what we're doing here is a blessing to you, as well as a light pointing only ever to Him. This has been That Fully Faith Podcast, encouraging you to keep your feet steady upon the path, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, and pursue that fully faith. Until next time. Shalom. God bless.